I promise you there's no sign-up sheets out in the lobby, and <laughs> I'm not going to make you sign up. Uh, but the reason, uh, we're going to be talking about service today. And you have, the Christian life, service is, is part of the deal. It's built into it. Um, it's like reading your Bible. You can't be a Christian and not serve. You can't be a Christian and not read your Bible. You can't be a Christian and not pray. Well, you can't be a Christian and not serve on some level. It's part of the deal. It flows out of us. If you're truly a follower of Christ, you serve. And so uh, the reason why I wanted to talk about service today, because actually, I, I, since Steve was taken from us, uh, I want to prepare our hearts uh, for his message for us. Now, he's got two. He's got this powerful message about dying and coming back to life. That's pretty cool. And so he's got some lessons, what he calls it lessons from heaven. Uh, what's he's, you know, what heaven has taught him and, and how it's applying to his everyday life. But the key to his ministry is servant evangelism, is, is uh, living a life of kindness and uh, a, a life of love, expressing love towards others, a lifestyle of, of something like that. And so what I want to do today is I want to prepare our hearts to hear his overall message, and that's going to be on, on service. Now I need to before we read the scripture, before we open the book, I need to prepare you because this message, the, the chapter that we're going to read, it, it's a classic. It's, it's one of the top five. Quite, it could be the top three of all scriptures, you know, as far as popularity goes. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? And you all have heard it. Maybe you don't necessarily recognize the address, but it's the love verse, right? It's, you know... Uh, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the chapter on love. You've heard it at weddings. You've heard it at funerals. You've heard entire sermon series preached on this chapter. And, you know, I, there's going to be a lot of holes because you really can't do the entire chapter 13 in one Sunday. There's going to be a lot of stuff left out. You're like, well, great message, Josh, but what about faith, hope, and love? I'm not going to talk about faith, hope, and love. I'm just going to talk about love today. So um, when we read this, I want you to uh, receive it with as if it's a fresh breath. Because, you know what, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And sometimes we hear things too much and we're just like, yeah, I've heard that, Josh. I've, I've been coming to church my entire life. I know this one. And so I don't, don't have that attitude when we read the scripture today. Uh, open up your ears. Try to hang on every word. It's a masterpiece. Chapter 13 is a masterpiece. And, and we're going to take a look as to why it is today. And how, uh, how it, this one fits into uh, service, servanthood. All right, verse 1. <clears throat> uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, and if I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it isn't self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
That's tough, huh? Uh, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Beautiful, right? And it's a standalone verse. Like I said, you, you hear this at weddings, you, at funerals, you know, you, entire sermons just on this one chapter. It stands alone. It is so well written. It, it, it applies to so many different levels. It is so teachable. But what it really is, it's actually a very harsh rebuke. If you read, if you start at chapter 1 and you read on through, you know that, that, that this chapter 13 is an extremely harsh rebuke on the Corinthians. So let's talk about what's, that, what's actually going on. Let's put it into context and let's take a look at who the Corinthians were, why this, is, why this flowery verse is actually so offensive to them, what their response was, and why it applies to you today and how you serve. All right. So uh, Corinth is... Um, well, historically, it's, and geographically, it's, it's about four miles wide. It's, it's an isthmus. It's a tiny chunk of land. It's a little tiny piece of land. And below it is a big giant piece of Greece. Lots and lots of real estate down here. Very, Athens is down here, and, and Sparta is down here, and all the, you've got all these major city-states down here. And then above it, you have Macedonia and, and Thessalonica and all the major city-states up there. And in order to connect the two, there's this one tiny sliver of land. It's an isthmus. It had two ports on each side. So two seas came in together and met it. So, very strategic. It, it, was, it, it funneled all the traffic. And so you could easily deduce that this was a very wealthy piece of real estate because all the commerce, was, both sea and land, was, being, was going directly through this area. Now, Corinthians were, you know, the ancient Greeks, the, the, the ancient Corinthians, uh, pre-Jesus Corinthians, were, were stubborn, prideful Greeks. And, and they made the Romans mad. And so the Romans came in in 146 BCE, and they devastated them. They, they, uh, 
they didn't just like, you know, defeat them and put it in a garrison and start taxing them. They were so mad. The Romans were so mad that they slaughtered all the men, every single one of them. They put all the women and all the children into slavery. They shipped them off and they made Corinth a ghost town. No one lived there anymore. And for a hundred years, no one lived there. Nothing happened until Julius Caesar came around a hundred years later and said, this is a nice piece of real estate. And so he set up a garrison. He began to rebuild. And what happened was there were no indigenous Greeks there. Everybody showed up because, again, this is a money-maker piece of real estate. They all showed up from all over the empire, from all over the known world. Greeks, Romans, Persians, Jews, anybody that wanted to make money showed up here. And they became extremely wealthy, extremely privileged. So this is the situation. So you have a new city, a new city without an aristocracy, a new city without any traditions, a new city that was, was, was taking in all of this new culture, Everybody was different, but everybody had something in common. And what they had in common was they wanted to make it. They wanted to get rich. They wanted to be somebody. They didn't go to Corinth to live and to settle down and to build a family, to get a white picket fence. They went to Corinth to make it. And if you think about, if you think about California, it's, a, it's, it's, it's similar. We have a lot of similarities between Southern California and and Corinth. My, my relatives came here. We were dust bowlers. They came to Southern California so they could make it, so they could have a better life. Maybe you're here because you're trying to make it. And so this is, this is the, the situation. Now, and in addition for it being extremely rich, it was extremely sexualized. Does that sound familiar in our culture? All right, uh, yeah, just turn on the TV if you don't agree with me. Or, you know, drive down the street and look at the billboards. Okay, they, it was a highly sexualized culture. Uh, uh, the, the city was dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of, of sexuality and the goddess of pleasure. And her temple was up on top of, the, um, on top of a mountain that overlooked the entire city. And every night, thousands of temple prostitutes would come into the city and I get jiggy with it. You know, you know what I'm saying. So it just, it was, everybody was, it was highly sexualized. So, sorry about that. Um, I'm sure I'll say other things that, anyway. Um, but this is, this is the atmosphere. So it basically, it's like Los Angeles. People go to Los Angeles to make it, right? You want to you break into Hollywood. You want to be rich and famous. Make when I went to a, a conference uh, on, on just, you know, church trends, and it was hosted by the Barna Group. And so they're, they're just kind of, you know, doing a little bit of cultural survey. And did you know that um, one out of four teenagers thinks that they're going to be famous someday? They, they call it the, they, I know, seriously, they call it the, um, uh, the golden idol, or golden idol, uh, uh, American Idol Syndrome. So in their, in their little minds, they actually they have this delusion that they're going to be famous someday. 
that they're going to be a rock star and everybody's going to love them. But all you got to do is go down to the strip in Hollywood or go to a restaurant, have a conversation with a gal or a guy that's trying to break into the industry, and you know that's not reality, right? Okay, so we come to, we come to Hollywood. Hollywood is full of broken hearts. It's full of disappointment for people that didn't make it in the industry, whether it's music or acting or whatever. And then the, the porn industry picks them up after that, right? That's great. Um, anyway, um, so it's, it's, you know, again, you think about it, you go to L.A. to make it. Okay, think about our, our another little uh, community just to the, the west of us here, Orange County. It is the most materialistic, one of the most wealthy counties in the entire world. There is, if you go to Newport and Laguna and all, you just, you see the opulence. You see the cars, the mansions on the water. It's one of the richest areas per capita anywhere in the world. They made it. They're rich. They're wealthy. And it's right there. And then, on the other side of it, if you, if you, if you head east, you've got Las Vegas. It's all, it's a drive away. You guys can go there today if you want. And then you've get, you get, you know, in addition to the Hollywood scene, you get the Las, the Las Vegas scene, highly sexualized, scary. You go into some of these casinos, and they got their little uh, goddess and goddesses there, or their little creepy clowns and stuff. Uh, there, uh, there's a spiritual significance to that. They, they traveled across the ocean, and they went to Las Vegas. I'll leave that alone. But anyway... I'm serious. You go to Las Vegas, you go into the casinos, they've got their idols standing there welcoming you in. They want your money and other things. They want your soul. Anyway, all right. Um, sorry. A little preachy there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, that's not the point of my message. Um, all right, so you get the idea. So if you take Los Angeles, if you take... If you take uh, the materialism in Orange County and you take the highly sexualized Las Vegas and you, you cram it all into, into Claremont, into a very small geographical location where everybody's trying to make it and become famous and get lucky, that's Corinth. Paul got beat up in Athens, nearly killed in Philippi, and God is calling him to Corinth. <laughs> it's like the worst of the worst. Uh, in our studies in Acts, we're getting to this in a few weeks, but in Acts 18 is where we actually see, you know, Paul entering into Corinth to begin his ministry. And those that are following along in Acts know that part of the strategy in going into a major city and presenting the gospel is that you connect with the Jewish community. You connect with, you know, you brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith, and you present the gospel there. So that's what Paul does. And he gives them truth. He gives them gospel. He argues law and Torah. I mean, he's, he's a genius. He knows how to talk to these guys. But they were, just, they were in it for the money. They didn't want to hear his truth. They wanted to stick to their tradition so they could please a God and please each other. And they... they, they they kind of laughed him out of, out of the temple in Corinth. And so he gets mad. He says, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you. And he begins to preach to the pagans. 
It says, you know how Jesus says, you know, you go into a city and they reject your message. You know, you shake the dirt off your foot. Well, in Acts 18, uh, Paul shakes the, the dirt off of his entire coat. There's like a pretty strong gesture. We probably have some other gestures for that in our society. But he just, he's like, all right, I'm like, forget you guys. And he opens up the gospel message to pagans. A diverse group of people have no concept or understanding of law. And this is who he begins to build his church upon. And it's difficult. The people, the individuals, the, the, the social makeup or the psychological makeup for people that are living in this town, they have an entrepreneurial mindset. Again, they don't come here to live. They come here to make something happen. They're going to make it happen. And so they're, they're, they're a driving force. They're going to see things through. They're going to think creatively. They're going to expand. They're going to you know, make stuff happen. So these are the type of people, type of individuals that Paul is working with. They're, they're highly motivated. They're, high, they're gifted people. Chapter 13 is actually a very specific snapshot of the community, of what he's dealing with. He's dealing with extremely gifted individuals. They're gifted naturally, right? So they got this drive to succeed and to, to earn and to make it. You know, they're, they're, they're risk takers. They're going to roll the dice. They're going to go for it. They're going to throw the Hail Mary. These are the people that he's working with. So we see, we see Paul beginning to build a church with this type of cowboy, if, if you will. Does that make sense? They're frontier people. He begins to encounter problems. And you know, like I said, in context, chapter 13 is a rebuke. And Paul is, he's addressing specific issues inside of this community. And if you read chapter 12, you know there's bad things happening. If you read chapter 8, it says, you guys were once sinners. You were homosexuals. You were thieves, you were liars, you were gossipers, you were backstabbers, you were opportunists, but now you're saved. That's his message. He says, look, God has changed your identity, and we've got some, we've got some problems to work out here. You see, these people that, uh, that are growing this church. See, there is a revival going on because God is using gifted people. And what the dilemma Paul finds himself in is, okay, I have an incredible revival on my hand, but I've got immor immorality going on in the church. I got people sleeping with their stepmom. And what he says, he says, you, you, you you can't, you can't function in the kingdom and sleep with prostitutes. Don't you? You guys get this, right? And you know what the attitude is? The attitude is, well, I speak in tongues. So, therefore, God must love me or something, right? I prophesy so I can gossip. I can behave badly behind closed doors. So what, what Paul is dealing with, he's dealing with an extremely gifted, powerful church 
that is experiencing a major revival in the worst city on the planet. But he's also dealing with an extremely troubled church. And he's trying to bring them into correction. So there's the story. Now he's going to drop a bomb on them. Again, these are people that he's led to the Lord. These are people that he has cultivated and walked with and, you know, argued with. And he, I don't know if you caught it, but he drops a major bomb on them. He says, makes them very uncomfortable, made me extremely uncomfortable when I read it, and it might make you uncomfortable too. You see, the Corinthians not only were functioning in their spiritual gifts, it could be the gift of administration or, you know, the spiritual gift of helps or the gift of hospitality, you know, all these ones that maybe we get confused with natural gifts. But they were also functioning in the ascension gifts, meaning these people that were sleeping with prostitutes were also praying for the sick and seeing them healed. These people that were, that were lying and cheating in business were justifying it because they functioned in the prophetic. And they're thinking to themselves, we're so special because the spiritual gifts are justifying our behavior. So we can get away with stuff. And Paul is saying, no, you can't. In fact, even though you're able to do all of these things, you can do the spiritual gifts. You can even do the ascension gifts or the miracle gifts. You can speak in tongues and stuff. You can do all this great stuff. Here's the bomb. Doesn't mean you're saved. Doesn't mean that you're a follower of Christ. Doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. And they're probably going, what? And I'm going, what, really? Are you saying to me that, Josh, are you saying that I can heal somebody through the power of the Holy Spirit and not have a personal relationship with God and go to heaven? That's what he's saying. That doesn't seem right, does it? It's actually biblical. Jesus talks about it. Jesus modeled it. If you think about it, Jesus, when he sent out the 12, 10, 11, 12, he sent out the 12, what did they do? They did everything that he did. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They performed signs and wonders and miracles. Raised the dead. They did all this stuff. Who was among them? Judas. Judas was not a follower of Christ. Even though he was among the number, my opinion is he didn't love Jesus. He loved himself. He loved money. But he was able to function in the spiritual gifts. Because it didn't exclude that. It didn't say, well, the 11 did it, but Judas didn't do any miracles because, you know, he was possessed by the devil. Now, I'm make this, and Paul makes this point. I'll make this point too. These miracles that these sinners that were performing them, the, 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 the supernatural didn't come from the devil. Supernatural came from God. It used them despite their failures. Do you, do you see this? God does this throughout the whole Bible. He uses broken people to advance his kingdom. He does it in this church. He does it all over the world. You just have to hang around the church long enough to see the people that function in their, in their spiritual gifts, well, maybe their character isn't all that great at home. Paul's making a very specific point on this. He's saying, just because you do these things doesn't mean that, that you love. You're actually nothing. 
Again, we see God using the supernatural through, actually in pagans too. So what? I'm so confused. Yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? So how does this all work and why? So Paul just drops this bomb on him. He says, I don't even know if you guys are saved. I don't think you guys are following Jesus. And this is why. This is what he looks into. So he talks about these things. Again, this is a snapshot. Okay, so uh, you have the spiritual gift of prophecy. You can fathom all mysteries. You have an understanding of knowledge. They probably knew the Bible pretty well. Again, these are smart people, right? They had faith that could move mountains, but they didn't have love. They were nothing. Okay, then he goes into some of the problems. Patient, kindness, doesn't envy, it's not proud. Now, it's not like Paul was just making this stuff up off the fly. He was addressing these issues before, too. He talks about being proudful. He talks about, you know, the, the, the knowledge that puffs up. That's pride. Doesn't keep any records of long. It never fails. So he says, you're doing all of these things, but you're not doing them out of the right reasons. And I question your very salvation. It's scary, right? All right, I know. So there's three people, three groups of people that I'd like to address today. Um, folks like, that are like me, that, that function in their spiritual gifts. So let's say I have the spiritual gift of teaching and I'm functioning in it, right? Okay, so I want to talk to you today. You might, you know, when I read, when I read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you probably checked out because you've heard it your entire life and you didn't really want to hear it again. Well, this is for you too. You seasoned saints, we have to be wary. We have to keep an eye out on our heart. We have to always check our motivations because the spiritual gifts, you know, this is how we encourage and we advance the church. They're extremely important to do and to function in, but they don't make us who we are. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist in the, in the great revival, about 150 years ago or so, he said that the spiritual gifts are like jewelry that you wear. You put them on, but they don't affect who you are. They have absolutely nothing to do with your character. They, they are external. I'll have a little confession time. And hopefully this will, this will illustrate the point. You see, I can function in my spiritual gifts no matter where I'm at. I can access my spiritual gifts. The, the, the gift of teaching. So I can, I, can, I can access that gift of teaching anytime I want. I didn't say anytime I want, but you know, if I if I find myself up on the pulpit, I can access the spiritual gift of teaching. Doesn't mean that it's anointed. It just means that I'm doing what God wants to do despite my own failures. How do I know this is true? It's because I've had the experience. Uh oh, you better turn that off. Where who's got that? Is it pastors at you? Not uh, you this time? All right. All right, come Holy Spirit. All right. Okay, there we go. Sorry. Anyway, um, 
I can, I, can, I can teach a sermon or a message or something like that, and somebody will come up to me, and, and again, I've had this experience in the past where I, I give a message, and I think it's like the lousiest thing in the world because life at home is terrible, and I'm in a bad spot, and I'm not doing good personally, and I'm depressed or whatever but it does something to someone else. So I've, I've done a message where I've been in a bad spot and somebody's come, Josh, that was the most amazing message. It was for me. And I'm like, really? Do, do you really? Because you have no idea what's going on inside of me right now. So do you see? Now the danger, seasoned saints, the danger of functioning in your spiritual gifts is finding your identity in your spiritual gifts. See, if I use my spiritual gifts to get approval from you or to get approval from God, it's a very dangerous thing. Because, why? Because somebody will say, Josh, your message stunk. Th that happens. <laughs> and I could be completely devastated. Like, it will wreck my world, right? I'll spin into a, a deep, you know, pity party and, and, and depression or whatever. And if, you know, if I can't take feedback like that, if I don't pull out of it, um, that's really saying something about the condition of my heart. I'm not ministering out of love. I'm pulling off of my spiritual gifts. How do you know? How do you know if you're just, you know, you're just pulling from your spiritual gifts and not pulling from your heart or from love? Well, if somebody says, man, that stunk, are you easily offended? Does it wreck your world? Do you, do you, you know, people make you grumpy and mad and angry just because somebody was critical towards you or they, they undermined you or, or they, they think that your spiritual gift is lousy or, you know, it just sounds like you're faking tongues right now, you know. See, that when that happens, that means our identity is wrapped up into our spiritual gifts and the spiritual gifts don't flow from who we are. That would be the fruit of the Spirit. I don't have time to get into that today. But the fruit of the Spirit, well, that's where the real magic happens. So you have to be wary. Okay, I'm functioning in my spiritual gifts. What's my motivation? Okay, think back to the gal in the red chair, right? Okay, so her, her initial reaction in order to please God was to whip out the checkbook. And when God, when Jesus put a little pressure and we pushed back a little bit more, she wanted to give more to please him. She wanted to perform better. Okay, now I'm not talking about money. I could be talking about serving. When you're serving out of the wrong attitude to please somebody else, to get their approval, to get God's approval, you can't buy God off. You can't buy them off with money. You can't buy them off with service either. It has to be done out of love. Okay, you know the part where it says, you know, if, you know, if I, I speak with tongues of angels, and if I prophesy but I don't have love, I'm a what? I'm a big gong. I'm a big noisy symbol, right? I'm just, you know, it's just no sense at all. This you know, noise, but without any meaning, okay? You know how 
The temple prostitutes were released every night. The thousands that, that came out of the temple to, to get jiggy with it. You know, you know what released them? What released them was the gong. It was that, it was that, that, that bong. That's, that's when you knew you were going to get lucky, right? It's like, it's like, sorry. So there was that gong. <laughs> sorry. Now, I'm uh, sorry. I just, uh, pastor's like, yeah. Um, it's like Pavlov's dog, right? You hear the bell. Anyway. Um, so, so the, you see, when we serve out of meeting the needs of others in order to get acceptance or in order to please God, in order to get God's, in order to get something from God, do you know what that is? It's you banging the gong so you can get God's attention. It's idol worship. Do you, do you see? It's idol worship. It's easy trap to fall into. Whenever we're trying to do things to get God's approval, to make him happy, to bless us, I'm going to, okay, pastor, I'm going to write a $100 check so I get that hundredfold. So there's conditions to my check, my tithe check that I'm going to put in. Because your word says, I checked it. I'm challenging you on this. Uh, it does say that you can, we can test God in that. But the attitude of the heart needs to be one from love. Okay? Second group of people that I want to talk to are the ones that think that they don't have any gifts, any spiritual gifts at all. I've got nothing to offer. Right? You know, mentoring, that's just not my thing. I, I know I'm not good at that. I can't do that. And you might be in this room thinking to yourself, I don't even know what my spiritual gifts are. I don't even know if I have any. In fact, I don't want any. This is, this is another attitude that we have. We don't, we don't want to take on the spiritual gifts. Now, if you think, there's a couple of opinions on this, but if you think that God doesn't want to give you spiritual gifts because, I don't know, you're bad or you're naughty or whatever. You're just not, God just doesn't love you as much as he loves everybody else. That's just not true. Paul says, diligently seek all the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. He says, diligently seek them so you can actually attain these things, whether you feel like you have them or not. He says, go after them, get them. Seek tongues, seek signs and wonders, seek the miraculous. You need them in your life. Paul is the perfect example of that. And so, you know, in the, in the strangest way, the ones that sit in the chair and say, I don't have any spiritual gifts, therefore I can't do anything. Well, in the same way, they're kind of feeding that idle mentality again. Not idle as I'm not doing anything, but they're just, they're serving something else. And they're not identifying with who God's created them to be. Next group I want to talk to is the group that truly don't, haven't quite grasped the concept 
of the gospel or the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, again, uh, this conference that Mako and I went to, uh, you know, it's on statistics. And, you know, the, the David Kellerman, um, president of the Barna Group, he wrote this book called, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, Lost Me. You Lost Me. That's the name of the book. And he's addressing, like, the mass exodus of young people out of our churches. It's, 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 a, it's an issue. It's a problem. We've talked about it in our own church. But uh, what, you know, part of the, you know, the sociological things that are going on is that people are getting married a lot later. See, you know, when you guys were young, uh, you left the church, and then you got married because your kids needed to go to Sunday school. So that, that's, that's what happened. But see, that's not happening anymore because people are getting married later and later in life. And so this thing that, okay, they're just, they're going to do their thing. They're going to sow their wild oats. You know, they're going to have fun in college. And then they're going to get married, figure out they've got to get their life together. They're going to come back to the church, and we will receive them with open arms. Well, folks, that's just not going to happen. That's not happening. And uh, David Kellerman, his... You know, one of his solutions, I, I gotta read, honestly, I gotta read the whole book. I've skimmed it. His lecture was based off of the book. Um, but his, one of his practical things that he suggests, and I think we are doing in part with this church, we're a great church because we're diverse in age, and we like to keep it that way, but there's health in the body of Christ that is diverse in age, meaning that you all need to be touching bases with some younger people, mentoring them, business people, people. You need to go upstairs and teach the junior high and high school every once in a while. Because what he says is, the practical message that young people need to hear is they need to hear messages on vocation. And his main, one of his, his quotes, per, you know, quote per word is, uh, how can you be concerned about young people's souls if you're not concerned about their vocation? He says another interesting thing, another interesting statistic. 75% of U.S. Americans believe in the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. What? For real? Are you kidding me? And so he's saying, you guys are spending too much time focusing on the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. You need to spend more time on practical stuff like, you know, what are you doing with your life? Where are you, where are you spending your money and stuff like that? Okay, I'm going to agree with him in tone. Not, I, again, I, have, I didn't mean to read the whole book, but I wish you think about that. Everybody in this country, a large, vast majority, believe in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. For real? Then why is Las Vegas still standing? Why do we have a modern-day Corinth in our, in our society? 75%? You see, this is where I disagree. I believe that understanding the gospel message of the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing that ties us to his love. And without his love, there is nothing. Look, we spend a lot of time putting on a great Easter production and a play. We got the case for Christ. We got the case for the resurrection. We, we think that our, our society doesn't know that, that Jesus died and ascended and rose again. We, obviously they do, because we just, they just polled them. What, really? Then what, what's going on, what's wrong with our society? See, I don't believe that people truly understand what the gospel message is, what Jesus actually did 
for us on the cross. And I'll say this, and, and, and again, this is going to sound like, you know, common things that you've heard a million times. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you're going to say to me, Josh, I know that. But you know what? Everybody dies. So what? Okay. Um, would Jesus face the cross and he suffered and he was hung on the cross and tortured uh, for you and your sins? And you're, like, and you're thinking, okay, Josh, look, there was a lot of ancient people that were tortured. Actually, probably even worse. So where's the big deal? Okay, uh, well, Jesus actually descended to hell. Okay, okay, Josh, that's pretty bad. Then uh, I don't want to go, yeah. Okay, so he suffered hell for us. That's interesting for this, you know, I'm still not getting it. How does this fit? All right. For you that haven't quite grasped the gospel message, understanding his nature and his love, Have you ever been dumped? Is there anybody in this room that's never been dumped? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. For real, Jody? Come on. You've never been, someone's never broken your heart? Oh, okay. All right, so, okay. Scare me for a second. All right, so everybody's experienced heartbreak, right? At some level, somebody's dumped you. Somebody's hurt your feelings. Somebody's devastated you. If you haven't, you need to experience it sooner or later. Uh, uh, tell you what, um, I'm going to buy you a steak dinner, and you guys can show up, and I'm not going to be there. So I can break your heart. You know. <laughs> okay, I, I think mine was in junior high or my freshman year of high school. This girl you know, tore my heart out, stabbed, stepped on it, and and it was awful, right? Remember that first feeling that you had of getting rejected? It's like, oh, no, no one's ever going to love me again. I might as well take my own life. And I was, you remember that feeling? It's awful, isn't it? It's like amplified when you have hormones involved. And um, <laughs> um, it's the worst feeling in the world. It hurts like hell to have somebody reject you. And... You see, when Jesus was in the garden, the agony in the garden, when he began to sweat blood, it wasn't because, you know, he was going to get whipped and beat and bleed and maybe even go to hell and all this kind of stuff. That's not what the anguish was. The anguish was that God wasn't going to love him. His father was going to turn his back on him because he had to. All right. You guys seeing where I'm going right now? See, Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit, they lived in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect love. When Jesus walked the planet, okay, Jesus is fully human, fully God, but when he was here, he functioned as a man, fully human. Everything he performed was out of, the, was out of the, the, the power of God. He had all of our, our, all of our frailties, all of our emotions, all of our, you know, physical limitations. But there was never a time that Jesus was disconnected from the love of the Father. There was never a time when Jesus was not aware of God's presence. 
ever. Nothing scared him. What drove him to sweat blood was the realization that that perfect love, that perfect unity was going to be broken for a moment. That his loving heavenly father was going to initially stab him in the back and turn away. Why? Because Jesus took your sins, our sins, humanity's sins, ancient sins, future present sins, the things that you did in college, the things that you're going to do in about an hour from now at lunch. And he forgave them. He took them all on himself. And when God saw that, when he saw humanity's sins on Jesus, he says, I can't love you right now. I have to turn my back on you. I have to turn my back on you. That is the amount of pain that Jesus suffered. The nails, the whips, the, the, the cross, the breaking of the legs, all that kind of stuff. That was his physical pain. He experienced a spiritual pain that we have no clue what it is. The God of the universe or universes as it is now, infinite, going both ways, billions and billions, mind-boggling years, that all of that love was taken from him at that moment. And this is what we have to grasp. This is what says, he loved us so much, for God so loved the world, right? It wasn't that God was so angry at us that he sent his son down here to, to, to whip us into shape. That was not the message. That was not the message. We see this being modeled by Paul. Paul, as he engages, okay, again, you got all these crazy, out of control, sinful, cowboy-ish Corinthians. Do you know that the Roman world had a name for immoral people? It was called Corinthianizers. You have been Corinthianized because you're immoral. You don't follow the rules. So Paul is dealing with people that don't know how to follow the rules, yet they're functioning in the spiritual gifts. And he's, I could just see him. He's like, he's probably got this nervous twitch in his eyes. What am I going to do with these people? They're driving me nuts. Now, it would be my natural inclination when dealing with people that live a lifestyle like that is to cast them out. Say, you have no room in the kingdom of God. You're a bunch of sinners. You don't have your act together. You're going to stab me in the back in a few minutes. And they do. But we actually see Paul coming back and back and back again, even though they denied his authority to tell them what to do. And he begins to minister to them, and he doesn't give up. That's love. That's love. Isn't that interesting? My, you know, if, if I was Paul, I'd say, all you sinners just go burn in hell. All you immoral, sexually immoral people. Just... See, Corinth, again, was a city, was a town that was experiencing revival, extremely gifted people, and an extremely troubled church with lots of problems. And Paul loved them so much 
that he was willing to serve on a level that was dangerous to his physical health. We've got to have the band and the ushers to come on up to the front. As they're on their way up, do you know how um, you know how the world knows that that we're Christians? But it's not because we have good theology. It's, it's love. It's we love each other. See, the world's perception of us is that we argue a lot. We point fingers at each other and we say we've got bad theology and you know, those are Armenians and those are Calvinists and you know, that church doesn't read enough Bible. That church does too much worship. So we, this is what the world sees. And they don't see us loving each other. That is how the world will know who we belong to, is if we truly love each other. If we're, if we're serving out of a place of, of heart and love and not out of a, a dependency to get something in return. That's how we know. And so your, your take home today is, is a question. You have to ask yourself this question. A- am I a gong? Am I a noisy gong? Am I, am I beating the drum to get God's attention or to get other people's attention? Or, you know, is, that, is that my approach to God right now? Or is, it, is, it, is that a love? And this is what we have to consider as a church family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for... Um, our ability as a congregation to push back the gates of hell and to say, eh, we're going to shake our dust off at you. We're going we're gonna to motor on. We're going to move forward. We're going to get things done. We're going to seek your counsel. And through the work that Jesus did on the cross, through that work of the ultimate rejection of all time, we have the same opportunity as Jesus did to always be aware of God's presence. We thank you, Father. Bless this offering. In your name.